when you are the only person that is commanding, that's a lot of power. Decide how much power you want to give. Hey, streamers and dreamers. I am Kike Lomo, and you are listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, September 21st, and this is your weekly update on music, culture, and what's next. All right, so uh, for this week's deep dive, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently because I saw this Instagram post that had a lot of engagement within my community being, you know, DJs, musicians, sound system enthusiasts. And it really got my gears going because I have a lot to say about this topic. Um, And I wanted to bring in a voice that you're probably quite familiar with at this point. Uh, Welcome back to the week table, Mr. Otto. How are you doing? Doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. How does it feel to be back in the booth when it's not your when I, it's not your week? <laughs> well, you know, it's always a pleasure to be with you. So. Always a pleasure. And, and it's, it's also it's been a while since we've both had our voices together. I know. Right? I'm actually looking forward to a little debate. Exactly. I love it. Love a little spicy <laughs> tip for tap. Um, so the reason why I wanted to bring Otto into the conversation is because I saw this post by this brand called Happy Tuesdays. They sell these post rave recovery packs, these little vitamin bombs. Um, And they did a post, a classic little infographic um, entitled, Why You Should Stop Facing the DJ Booth. And, you know, they, they go into some of the elements around how the position of the DJ in the space of a club has evolved over the years since the very beginnings of club culture Um, and how, you know, now there are these like centerpieces, um, of the dance floor when back in the day, you know, you would even potentially have DJs selecting records in a different room. Um, But they kind of go into the different elements of why you should not be facing the DJ booth um, about, you know, bringing your attention away from the DJ booth and potentially having connection with more people, you know, making more eye contact, um, acknowledging other ravers on the dance floor um, and having that kind of familiarity with one another, um, taking the focus away from... The, the DJ and putting it back into the music. So, you know, looking, um, looking kind of almost like taking away a sense and just really focusing on the music once more. Um, and then, you know, a bit of a spicy, spicy third point, which is taking away from these ego-centered DJs, you know, in today's world, and I quote, of huge stages with stadium-sized LED screens, lasers, CO2 cannons, and DJ names emblazoned in huge letters behind the booth, perhaps moving our attention away from them could help stem the tide of ego-centered selectors. Um, And yeah, I I read the post and I think I have a lot to say about it. And I'm sure that Otto does too, which I'm actually going to invite you to to give your opinions on now because I'm super curious about it. Oh, I'm going up first. Okay, classic. Yeah, I would love to hear what your thoughts are. You know, it's it's funny because the second slide of this post after you sent it to me mentions Larry Levin um, and the Paradise Garage, which for listeners who might not know is one of the most influential nightclubs of dance music history. It's basically where the um, experimentations around funk, disco, and uh, mixing records became house music later on. And the the DJ booth 
at that club was famously like many other DJ booths at the time. It was a its own wooden box room. It had room for a lighting designer to also be next to it. And you have to remember that these DJ booths were built to isolate the bass from affecting the records. So, you know, at that time, there wasn't an option, oh, the record player's not working, so we'll just go to CDJs. It's like all, the record players had to work, otherwise the club was not happening. Mm. So um, I just I just did a, a presentation, an interview with two people who were at the Paradise Garage, like every night. One One person worked there, and the other person was a dancer, and she's in her 80s. Oh, shout out to her. <laughs> yeah, Michelle, she's killer, amazing. And uh, yeah, I mean, they both have different views about the the DJ being the center of attention. They're, but it, it is kind of a consensus from older ravers and older club goers that uh, that that element of today's going out, even especially inside of a club, kind of turns them off because it was much more of a cyclical energy up until the 90s. You know, it's interesting because... I guess I have a viewpoint from three different angles. One, from my position as a DJ. Two, as my position as a a raver. I think I can call myself a raver, right? I had this realization the other day. I'm like, I think I'm a bit of a party girl, you know? (laughs) I just kind of turned partying into profession. Um, And also as someone who who, um, curates evenings and like throws throws events now and then, even though I don't really like it, but, you know, I'm kind of forced to because of um, my my role in different club um, or cultural um, facilities, but I digress. And I have to say, um, and actually there's a fourth perspective as well, which is um, I've mentioned a few times that, but I'm working on this documentary around the science of club culture. And so I've learned a lot about what happens in the brain when you're on the dance floor and how that, you know, um, how these interactions with one another um, and with the DJ um, really affects how your experience going out. For me as a DJ, I like the crowd to be facing me. And that's not as, you know, uh, driven by egocentric, you know, affirming my 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 own ego or whatnot. Um, it's more about enabling me to do my job. Because for me, I need to see reactions. I need to see movement. I need to see facial expressions in order for me to make the next decisions about the songs I'm going to play to see what's working, what's not working. Um, And also just to engage because for me, it's about um, that shared connection. That's I'm getting energy from a crowd. A crowd is getting energy from me. And that's all dictating um, what um, I'm about to do next. And that's also backed by science, right? I've been doing a lot of research, speaking to a lot of neuroscientists, and I can't give too much away because, you know, that's the premise of the documentary um, and I don't want to get in too much trouble. But the science backs this. There's this, there's this element of connectivity that we get from people, um, from all moving at the same same time, moving in synchronicity with one another, but also with the DJ. And that kind of brings these... these um, that feel, we know from feeling connected, I mean, it's also one of the reasons why social media has grown to the prevalence it has today. When you feel these uh, moments of feeling connected with one another on a social level, you'll get, you get rewarded chemically from your brain, right? You get releases of all these um, neurochemicals, serotonin, dopamine, and whatnot, um, that make you feel good. So from, from my perspective, I can imagine that 
the dance floor, specifically in clubs, has evolved because of that, those rewards that we get from our from our from our brain. So you probably find that oh, um, now that I'm in sync with one another, and now that I'm in sync with the DJ, the club people are like, oh, I feel I feel good. I feel I feel really good. There's this element, you know. There's I, I can attest to it where you look up and you see people like cheering, whooping, but also kind of like moving with one another. I always feel these little cute moments of of you know you see people dancing in sync with one another, dancing with one another. You know, fanning each other on the dance floor. It's all about feeling this connection. It's part of a community, right? From my perspective, now what you have is the introduction of cameras on the dance floor, mm. which, you know, we've seen that this formula works. Um, people have noticed that this formula has worked of, you know, being around a DJ, um, but also being around one another. And then you have people now documenting that with the likes of Boiler Room and other streaming platforms as well. And as a result of that, you've had now people blown up, you know, blown up from that. Like they've, their, their, their careers have accelerated. They're posting all these clips on social media platforms. Their follower account, their follower account has grown. Um, their profile has grown. Their income has grown. Always bringing it back to capitalism. <laughs> but, you know, um, that, that has now facilitated why we are here today and why people are making these complaints. So I think there's a sweet spot. And, you know, we both live in Berlin where it's quite normal for there to be no phones on the dance floor. And I'm a big advocate of that. And I, I feel like personally, um, we should be facing the DJ. Okay. Not not all the time. Right. You know, I, I, when if, if I'm a party goer now, for example, I'm going to be, you know, but I'm also, you know, I'm a party goer that is a DJ. So I'm always going to be looking at what the DJ is doing no matter what, because I'm curious, you know, I'm learning new tips and tricks. But I'm also going to wander around. I'm going to engage with other people. I'm going to have a little boogie, um, shake my ass a little bit, right. you know, and, and move around. And that that is exp- important for me for the experience as well. Anyone who knows me well and knows me for my DJ career will find it utterly hypocritical for me to say that I don't appreciate when people are staring at the DJ because I had a very theatrical persona as a DJ. Throughout my career, I would even recreate myself into different characters. I had a drag persona for a while. People, every single time- What was the drag name? Well, it was Jackie House. And so every time that I would go out and play, um, I actually set the bar for myself to have an even more ridiculous fit. For me, this discussion has been ongoing because I started DJing during a time when there were limited amounts of phones in the club and it wasn't really a thing. But I also started DJing during a time when the the differentiation between going to a queer radical safe space and hearing really edgy music was very far apart, at least in San Francisco where I was or in the US. But when I think of the DJ being the center of the room, it's like contextualized for me at a time where as a DJ, I needed to do a lot of work to teach people that this music is also for us. You know, I might play a minimal techno song or I might play something via Lobos. And like, it, if you wait, you know, like see how I'm having a great time and how I'm dancing to this song, like that contextually can like help people loosen up. I also feel like the DJs being, you know, the the ones that are really, really bubbly and crazy behind the booth and dance and stuff. I love that. Yeah. Like, and if it's authentic, I love it even more. Like if you see Ellen Allian like DJing, yeah. you know, she's killing it. She's playing the tunes, but like she can't help but bounce around. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's two parts of that I want to respond to. One, what you said about, you know, being that 
being there and showing that it's for us, that representation of you or also like other minority um, DJs being behind the DJ booth, for me at least, that was one of my inspirations of actually becoming a DJ in the first place because I saw myself represented by people who look like me and played music that I liked in that situation. And also, okay, I have to have a confession. Um, <laughs> so I've lived many, many past lives. Um, I've had many professions. I've had many um, summer jobs. Um, one of them, I used to be a cheerleader. <laughs> and we're not going to go into much, too much into it. Um, you know, there's pictures buried on Facebook somewhere. <laughs> but there was also this thing about like when I was a cheerleader, you always had to smile. Like you always, it was like the cheer smile, the really forced grin, like, yeah, like this is amazing. But there is something to that and something that I've noticed about like when I'm smiling, when I'm when I'm engaging with people are watching me, they feel good as well. I don't know if you've ever watched a DJ and they're like absolutely clanging, it's going all wrong and they're throwing an absolute tantrum. And like it, it you're, you feel, you're like, oh, like the energy that they're giving off like ruins that feeling, you know, like you're Absolutely. like, oh, it feels, it feels bad. You feel bad because they feel bad. Right? right. So I think, again, that kind of alludes to this, this connection that you feel with whoever's playing the music. Right. Right. I, I think that a lot of the um, dissenting opinions around DJs um, commanding so much attention in a room, this like ego of everyone facing the DJ. I always explained it when I was mentoring young DJs. I was like, especially as a promoter, because it comes with as well, like the messaging around getting fan bases mm. is a part of the power that you wield as a performer. And when you are the only person that is commanding, I mean, when the music is so loud that people can't even talk over it, that's a lot of power. Mm. And so I think that's why this post is saying, hey, decide how much power you want to give. Mm -hmm. And by turning away from the DJ, you're reclaiming that power, mm -hmm. right? It's not like you're um, saying you don't like the music. It's just exercising your rights as a raver to take back some of the party because the you know, there was a there was this amazing club in San Francisco called The Mighty, and it actually had pieces of the Paradise Garage sound system in it, even though they just like it was too small for them. But it was a place where you could go hear house music or techno and like dance ciphers would break out. And I love a dance cipher. And I've actually written about it recently because. When a dance cipher breaks out, especially at a rave or a dance music event these days, it's so insane to finally see like the entire room turn away from the DJ and look at some sick break dancer or a popper or something like that. And it's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I even would argue that as a DJ watching that, you're like, that also enables me to do my job too. Cause you're like, all right, they're, they're doing this so much. I mean, it's the roots of hip hop culture, right? Absolutely. Like they would see people having these break dancing moments with the breaks and these old soul records and these old funk records. And it's like, okay, let's go, you know? So, and I, I think also just to what you said about power, you know, as much as I say, like, you know, I, I am, um, I'm about the music. I'm, I'm a DJ that doesn't like to really be perceived. Like I, I literally am just playing other people's music until I release my own music, but maybe that comes <laughs> at some point. I have to say like, you know, power is corrupting because that, you know, there was a moment where I was in Ghana. There's definitely a DJ scene and it's definitely evolving, growing. There's so much more coming up, but um, there were these more mainstream spaces that I went to where you'd see the DJ booth, tucked away in a corner behind the pillar, absolutely no interaction with the crown. Literally, their job was just to be background music. 
and I have to say, my ego was checked. I was like, wait a second. I don't know if I agree with this. Like where I'm, where I'm living, like DJs are rock stars. Like they're, they're the center of the attention. And uh, it was, it was definitely like a, um, a moment for some, some reflection because, you know, you have to under, like coming into a space where coming, coming from a space where, you know, you have this huge prevalent DJ culture. I mean, you speak to people in Berlin, every fourth person is a DJ, everyone's right. mom's DJ, like, right. you know, and it's funny, but you know, it's also the reality of the fact that the city is built around that. Well, I think that's also why a lot of people, their one way of getting around this conversation is putting the DJ booth on the floor. Yeah. And so uh, with enough tall people in the room, you won't be able to see the DJ. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes r- ridiculous at some point. And you, that's where you see who, where everybody's star signs are, like come alive. Because yeah. there, you know, there are those Tauruses and those Leos in the crowd that are like, we can't see anything. I'm going to dance with the person next yeah. to me or I'm going to do a twirl. Yeah. And then there are the other people who are like, no, but this is like how as a as a club, we're supposed to organize ourselves and respect the music by like, you know, staring at the artist. And it's like, but if you can't see yeah. the artist or the DJ and you can just hear the music, then that's one thing. But I did want to bring up one other thing, which is a little bit of a wild card for me. So while I've been doing research about Paradise Garage um, and I was trying to understand like, OK, what is a fundamental difference between the 70s and 80s and house music and dance music at then and now? And it's lyrics, Dance music is in majority this celebration of us finally getting away from these messages that are some can somewhat be cliche or um, the idea that the producer can create instrumentals that speak on their own. And so nowadays, to me, a little bit of the staring at the DJ thing is because we've lost a lot of the the voice Mm -hmm. of the music. Mm hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, it's interesting because even just those two combinations of what you said about the DJ booth being kind of on the floor as opposed to on a pedestal, but also music with more lyrics, I really see that dynamic also at play in clubs like Burkhan and Panorama, right? And I think when you're talking about, you know, the DJ booth being on the floor, that's where it is. You know, it is kind of still at the front, but exactly what you said, you know, there's, you you can't always see the DJ booth, especially if you're at the back of the room and like that kind of facilitates kind of like dancing with other people. And then, you know, Panorama, you're more likely to hear people playing music with lyrics and, you know, you're having these moments. I, I personally love to put a little cheesy moment, you know, a little recognizable track that people can sing along to and there's like right. these elements of familiarity. Um, you know, you turn to your friend, you're, you're singing yes. with them, you know, you're feeling yourself. And so I, I personally, um, I feel that connection far more um, when, I, when, I, when I'm in that type of space. And that's right. the, like, for me, that's like a perfect example. I mean, what, what's your experience with it? I actually want to bring up this idea that like a lot of DJs I've seen recently are subverting this whole conversation by like being the most concentrated behind the booth, but being the coolest person in the room at the same time. So it's like, there's this whole like category of DJ, younger DJ that I, and especially see it with hats. There's a lot of hat wearing, right? Like cover the eyes, cover yourself, like almost become like as small behind the booth as possible, but, but still be like, really crushing it on the mixer and like selecting really fresh stuff and like, or even playing some really cool mashups. Yeah. I have to say, I actually also can't think of, um, of a female DJ that does that. And that is perceived in that way, you know? Well, Josie Rebel, who's like one of my uh, favorite yeah. DJs of all time. Um, it, it, I've seen her so many times and, and I, 
I love the way in which she subverts this idea of how little can I give you and how much does, <laughs> do people want? Yeah. Because it's so funny in a way. I mean, Josie is like, she doesn't have Instagram, does she? She doesn't have Instagram. She is like not interested in, like that being perceived as definitely, you can tell it's not something that she's interested in, but she is a, an absolutely incredible DJ. So she must, Very you know, must so. command the room. And it's so funny to watch people just waiting for Josie to look up, waiting, <laughs> and it never happens. And it's it's another example of this post being like, hey, what are you waiting for? Yeah. This DJ is clearly giving you a room for yourself. You can feel their energy. They're communicating through the music. They're doing their job. They're not going to look up. What are they saying to you? Yeah. But I think this expectation is also driven a lot by algorithms, you know? For sure. Like, I think from a generational perspective, you know, we're also coming into a generation that have entered club culture from the pandemic. And their only reference point for club nights are these boiler room clips or right. all these performances. And so I think that's where that expectation comes from. And I, I'd be curious to see if, you know, as we kind of get back into, we're kind of getting back into the swing of, swing of things post-pandemic. Right. I don't. I wonder whether things have been permanently changed by, right. by the pandemic and whether right. we can ever get back. Also, social media, as far as I'm aware, um, is here to stay. Right. And so, you know, these clips that, you know, drive engagement, drive views, drive right. likes in general, that, you know, are all pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, DJs, the drop hits, everyone's going, Going, losing their mind and whatnot. Yeah, People adverts. Adver basically, advertisements are all kind of like these um, these these things that people look to as a reference point for this is a good night because look at everyone having a good time and who's at the center of that? Right. The DJ. I think that's such a great outcome for this post and the conversation we're having, which is like, hey, remember, being cool is getting through that entry level part of understanding our culture, right? Yeah. So if... If you're listening to this and you're going to your first raves and you think based off of what you've seen and what you know and what everybody's doing at the club, this post is saying like that's being built through a machine, mm. your perception of what the DJ wants from you and what the club wants from you and what the music wants from you. Mm. It is an advert. So get over it. Figure out how you want to be in the club. Mm -hmm. And there's a history that backs that up either way, whether or not you want to become the center of attention by starting a breakdancing circle or if you want to like try out some of your TikToks in the room. And then there's this like flip side of it, which is like also understand how to respect other people's space without just not being an engaged listener. I feel like that's a great place to put a pin in it, you know? Thank you so much. I feel like we really dived into it, given the hot takes, given the opinions, given the examples. But I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. I hope <laughs> Me you have too. Too. We should Me do it again sometime. Oh, please. Oh, please. Absolutely. Let's <laughs> let's pick another DJ-focused topic. Yes. Love it. Love a bit of DJ discourse. <laughs> Thanks for letting me in the room. Of course. Although um, you'll be taking this chair back next week, I oh presume. Oh my, yeah, you took my chair. <laughs> we share it. Now I know you get it warm, so that makes me feel good. <laughs> Amazing. Now, let's dive into the other headlines that mattered this week. Songs as investments. Are you in? What it means to be invested in an artist has reached a new level. Now, it might be possible to buy a slice of the royalty pie of your favorite song. 
A new platform called Jukebox, spelt J-K-B-X, just launched, selling fractional shares of song royalties from different songwriters. That means you can literally buy a share in the future income from the portion of a song that someone has put up for sale, like Beyonce's Halo, which is actually available on the platform. The songwriter forfeits long-term income from their composition in exchange for a short-term payment. You, on the other hand, would be investing in the song as you might with any other traditional stock, with different rates of return depending on, let's say, how popular it might be in the future. Major companies are already doing this. The company called Hypnosis trades on the London Stock Exchange and has already purchased catalogues by the likes of Shakira, Timberland, Rick James and Skrillex, amongst many others. But Jukebox is one of the platforms trying to make this more corporate trend catch on amongst retail investors. It's riding the wave of financialized fandom, where it's not just enough to like or even love an artist. People want to feel like they're an active participant in the artist's career and success too, treating the song as its own asset class. UK bans laughing gas. You've probably heard the whoosh of the balloons it's sold in and the clinking of the metal canisters once they're used. Nitrous oxide is an extremely popular legal high, also called laughing gas or Lachgas auf Deutsch. It only has a pretty short high, but people are consuming it all over Europe. I guess one of the reasons why it's such a popular drug these days is that it's easily available and cheap in most countries. Although it's pretty harmless, using it excessively can cause permanent damage to the central nervous system and even paralysis. That's one of the reasons why the UK has announced that nitrous oxide will be banned by the end of 2023. The plan is to categorise it as a Class C drug, along with the likes of anabolic steroids and GHB. And that basically means that you could go to prison for possessing it. In Berlin, you can actually still buy nitrous oxide from some Spätis, and it's an eternal presence in some live music scenes in the US too. But the UK is cracking down, so UK party hotspots will probably look and sound very different come January 2024. The iPhone as a gaming console. When Apple introduced the iPhone 15 last week, it was really big news. There are two reasons for that. First of all, the iPhone 15 has a new A17 Bionic chip which means that it will be possible to play AAA games like Assassin's Creed and Resident Evil 4 on your iPhone. And there's another big feature which may seem kind of small, but actually may be the most important one. There will finally be a USB-C charging cable for the iPhone, so no more fumbling with Apple-only lightning cables. Apple mentioned that pretty casually, since it wasn't really their idea. It's an adaptation that they were required to introduce after the European Union passed a law mandating that all smartphones sold have a USB-C port by the end of 2024. Apple pushed back against that, saying that it will stifle innovation. But in the end, they had to give way. The new iPhone 15 will be released tomorrow, September 22nd. And the gaming world already seems pretty hyped. I'm just wondering what the hell we're going to do with all of these lightning cables, though. Peso Pluma threatened by the cartel. Mexican musician Pesa Pluma has received death threats relating to a planned concert in Tijuana. If you don't know who he is, he just performed at the VMAs and his song Ella Baila Sola was one of the biggest tunes this summer. Back in Mexico, he's already playing sold-out shows in front of 100,000 people and now he's crossing over to a global audience. Back to the concert in Tijuana. The death threat to Pluma came from the major Mexican drug cartel Jalisco New Generation. 
According to Vice, banners appeared in different areas around Tijuana last week with warnings to Pluma not to play his concert there on October 14th. Earlier this summer, we reported on a concert van in Cancun. Here's Otto with the recap. Cancun's concert ban. The popular Mexican tourist destination Cancun, known for its rowdy atmosphere for spring breakers and retirees alike, has announced a ban on concerts by some of Mexico's most well-known musicians. These musicians were banned from playing live shows in the city because they were accused of having connections to organized crime. And this very accusation might also apply to Pesa Pluma. A lot of his songs are inspired by the so-called Nacocorido genre, a form of traditional Mexican ballad about real-life drug traffickers. And these songs by Pluma are considered dedications specifically to the Sinaloa cartel. And well, let's just say the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel, the ones responsible for Pluma's death threats, are rivals in Mexico. In past interviews, Pluma has refused to discuss his narco-inspired songs. He even hung up on an LA Times journalist when the reporter asked him about it. So even though Pluma has not acknowledged it publicly, he might not take the threats lightly. He just postponed multiple shows without giving any reason. And now the recommendation of the week, which this week comes from yours truly, it's me. So last week in Munich, I had the absolute pleasure of playing alongside a drum and bass legend, the legend that is Goldie. Um, it was amazing for me to see him play. I'm a big jungle and drum and bass fan. If you've ever listened to my radio shows, I'm always squeezing it in. And it almost was like a full circle moment for me to witness him at the decks doing his thing. I don't fangirl for very many people, but I was definitely beaming from side to side and I also popped my grills in for, as a little tribute as well. Um, and so, yeah, I've been taking this moment to recap on his biography that is called All Things Remembered. It's not necessarily new, but given last week's events and being able to see him do his thing, it's been a really interesting recap for me just to review his life and his connections with graffiti culture, jungle and drum and bass culture, music culture in the UK in general and just, you know, keeping it punk. So shout out to Goldie um, and definitely take a look at his biography, All Things Remembered. All right, that's all for the week this week. Thank you for locking in. We are back here next Thursday. Take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories.